I got no game, son. Uh, you can just finish in the kitchen, yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's go into the next part. So we've covered the everlasting gospel, not exhaustively, right? In fact, the everlasting gospel and the faith of Jesus have overlap, and we'll close with that. So we did one bookend just now. We'll close with the other bookend uh, with the faith of Jesus. And but I want to cover now is this idea of fear God and give glory to Him because uh, one of the things that we can struggle with or wrestle with is. Um, unhealthy views of what this is. There's kind of mixed varying views of what fear God and your glory to Him means. So I want to kind of talk about that to kind of clarify the difference between abject fear and the fear of God. So let's pray and then we'll go into this. God in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to study together, to grow together. We pray for your hand of blessing to be with us and that you would give us uh, a wisdom that exceeds our own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a previous version of me made these slides, and I'm trying to figure out what he was thinking. So just one moment here. It was only like... So I taught this class last year, and like each one of these modules took nearly an hour, but for some of them, there's like 10 slides. It's like, what on earth? How many rabbits did I chase to make 10 slides last an hour? So I'm going to do something... I'm going to use a separate set of slides for this, and I'll come back. But what's it called? There's no thief like fear. That's what it's called. You know you're getting old when you talk to technology. (laughs) I will say GYC no longer has an age threshold. It's just an adult fee, period. I was dreading the moment I'd have to hit that drop-down box. I did a... uh, a 5K for the NAD is like a health whatever thing. And there were like different like check boxes. And there was like 25 to like 35. And there was like 36 to like 50. I was like, hey, I feel attacked right now. Like 36 and 50 are not on the same plane. Like those are two totally different worlds. And I uh, cried in the fetal position the rest of the day. I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, so why I'm passionate about this topic. It's important, that's all. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. It's, it's, it's a big struggle for many people. There are many people who are believing present truth and are scared to death. Um, they don't really believe that God loves them, that God accepts them, that they're going to be good enough. The judgment itself horrifies them, which is ironic because John says in 1 John that we can stand with boldness in the judgment. So how can John say that whenever most of us are like just hoping we squeak out a good enoughness right? Verdict at the end of the day. We're told this in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Again, we're dealing with the topic of fear. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, we're told that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, it's been helpful for me to kind of think through what's being said here, because what's basically being said is that fear robs us of love, Uh, of power, sorry. The ability to love and be loved and to be able to make sound 
decisions. And when it says to love and be loved, that's talking about God and our fellow man. That fear robs us of the ability to love God and be loved by God. And fear robs us of the ability to be loved by others and to love others, right? Because I don't want to get hurt again. So we harden ourselves. We wall ourselves off. We keep people at a distance because we're afraid of getting hurt again, right? Our self-protective tendencies can come from this a lot of the time. So if I were to write a DSV, a D-standard version, this is how 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 would read. This is what's implied, right? If God has not given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind, a spirit of fear, sorry, but of power, love, and a sound mind, what it implies is that fear robs us of power. It robs us of the ability to love God and others and be loved by God and others and to be able to think and make decisions with a sound mind. Fear alters the way that we do the very essentials of life. That's the point, okay? So already this is concerning, right? Just from the very get-go, this is concerning if we don't understand this. So then that kind of leads to some further questions. Fear leads us to make bad decisions. Some examples of this, I'll summarize them for time's sake. People of the Gadarenes, whenever Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac, they're so freaked out by this guy who was naked, living in tombs and cutting himself, being seated and clothed in his, in his right mind, that they literally tell Jesus to get out of town because they're scared. Like, just get out of here. They don't know what to do with it. So they send him away. Basically, the entire life of King Saul from his first fall onward, is, is full of him making bad decisions out of fear. Elijah running from God in his call right before God, you know, provided right after he called down fire from heaven. Peter denying Jesus, we talked about that as well. And so, if God hasn't given us a spirit of fear and doesn't want us to have that type of experience, what's the solution? What's the answer to this situation? Well, we're told in 1 John chapter 4, beginning of verse 16, that we have known and believed the love that God has for us. I will read this verse a million times this year. Just get used to it, okay? Um, that we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Not that we intellectually agree to the plausibility that God might love us, but that we experientially know and fully believe the love that God has for us. This is our answer to the fear problem. And then it says, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So when we truly know and believe the love that God has for us, we're no longer going to be afraid of the judgment. We can have boldness in the judgment, not in our works, our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ and his love and assurance towards us. Does that make sense? That's what gives us boldness in the midst of the judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Verse 18, there is how much fear in love? There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So us receiving God's perfect love for us disarms fear's power in our life. Okay, it casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. Again, we're afraid of getting hurt. This is why we can't have relationships anymore, why we don't trust, why we keep people at arm's length, because we're afraid of getting hurt. Right, those self-protective tendencies and that hardening that takes place is because of previous violations. But when we're secure in God's love, we're able to live a life that is free, which can still have boundaries, by the way. We can live a life with boundaries, but we're not to live a life without relationships and trust. Does that make sense? Right? We have boundaries in certain scenarios where people have not proven themselves trustworthy, but that does not mean that everybody's now not trustworthy because that person violated. Do you understand the difference? It gives us the ability to to close certain doors with peace in our hearts and to allow for open doors and new relationships that are safe and can be reciprocal and healthy and helpful uh, because we lose a lot when we harden ourselves in this way. We were made for relationships. 
So he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then it says that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The only way that we can find love in our hearts for God is by first encountering the love that he already has for us. That's what the Bible says, which is why it should be a regular part of the messages that we share. Not just here's the things that God expects. We need to communicate God's love at the heart of what God expects, let alone the fact that he's able to enable us to succeed in what he expects. Listen to this, Desire of Ages 480. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. Some people may feel attacked right now. It is not a longing for heaven or a fear of hell that should drive a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what we're told. Big reason for that is that selfishness is at the heart of both of them. Escape from present difficulty or escape from future difficulty. Right? That's not really what our goal should be on what leads us on why we follow Jesus. Elwhite makes this very interesting statement. I'll find it here real quick. Um, here we go. Here we go. This is from Lift Him Up. It's from another place, but I'll take this version. Lift Him Up, page 98.3. The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us, for it savors of selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us, that we may be compelled to right action through fear? It ought not to be so. And then she says, Jesus is attractive. Amen. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life. He, sa he says to us, I am the Lord thy God. Walk with me, and I will fill thy path with light. Jesus, the majesty of heaven, proposes to elevate to companionship with himself those who come to him with their burdens, their weaknesses, and their cares. He will count them his, as his children and finally give them an inheritance of more value than the empires of kings, a crown of glory richer than has ever decked the brow of the most exalted earthly monarch. So just like, get ready, get ready. Ah, she says it savors of selfishness. It should be the attractiveness of Jesus that drives us and leads disciples to follow him, not fear or reward. Okay, So they behold the Savior's matchless love. This is back to Desire of Ages 480. Uh, I'll just start at the beginning. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. They behold the Savior's matchless love revealed throughout his pilgrimage on earth from the manger of Bethlehem to Calvary's cross. And the sight of him does what? It attracts and it softens and subdues the soul. Love awakens in the heart of the beholders. They hear his voice and follow him. Okay, so when we encounter the loveliness of Jesus, it softens our hearts and leads us to want to follow him. This is from, from eternity past. Let the youth see the tender love the Father in heaven has manifested toward them, and dignity and honor to which they are called, and the dignity and honor to which they are called, even to become the sons of God. And thousands would turn with contempt from selfish aims and pleasures that have hitherto engrossed them. They would learn to hate sin, not merely from the hope or reward or the fear of punishment, but from a sense of its inherent baseness. They would hate it for what it is, not for what it may do to them at the end of the day, right? So love is the only pure and true power that should motivate a Christian in their experience and our decision-making. And the only way to find that love is to first encounter God's love for us, which is why it needs to be constantly presented before the people and before ourselves, okay? So fear robs us of love for God and love for others because we're afraid of being hurt. 
What we desperately need is a life course altering encounter with God's perfectly selfish love for us, selfless love for us, to be fully known and fully loved. And all of us long for that. That's what drives out our fear and brings us to a deeper love for Him and the capacity to be willing to love and be loved by others. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, this is a sad example of a good friend of mine. This guy's one of the reasons I became an Adventist. And I ran into him in an airport a few years ago. And he's not Adventist anymore. He's not even Christian anymore. But I still love him. We're still friends. We still support each other in what ways we can. Uh, you, you know that you can do that, right? Just because someone leaves the church, you don't have to, like, you know, not be their friend anymore. You may their best, be their best chance of seeing Jesus after they leave. And so uh, I told him, and we can have open conversations about faith and so forth. So I, say, I, just, I struggle, I said, to understand the appeal of atheism because it completely denies the intrinsic moral value of a person. Right? Everyone wants to be valued. Everyone wants to matter. And I just don't understand how atheism is attractive because it, it takes away that option. You're just a convenient biological mistake, basically. Um, that happens to be here. And the answer he gave me, I was totally unprepared for. What he says is what makes it so appealing is that you don't have to deal with the fear of having hope and then end up being disappointed anymore. Right? You don't have to continue to get your hopes up and then be hurt anymore. You don't have to hope anymore. You just live as if hope is not an option. Uh, which is, as she was saying, a statement from Brene Brown where she says it's easier to live disappointed than to be disappointed. It's easier to live in a constant state of disappointment than to get your hopes up and get hurt. And so for many of us, that's what our horizontal relationships look like. No hope, not going to get my hopes up. I've been hurt by somebody. Everybody's going to do that. So I'm just going to live in a survival mode, but I'm never going to enjoy the rich bounties of genuine, godly fellowship and intimacy and so forth. And that can happen. But Romans 5.5 tells us that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God wants us to have hope. Um, And skip that one and that one. Galatians 6.9 is a good one. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if... If we do not lose heart. Right? And then Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the very fact that he's called the God of hope implies that he wants you to live in hope. Right? All right. So abject fear is not God's chosen method to reach us or to motivate us. In fact, fear is in many ways a selfish motivation. It leads us to make decisions to protect ourselves and to provide for ourselves instead of relying upon God to protect us and provide for us. It's kind of a form of self-sabotage eventually, okay? Interestingly enough, in many of the supernatural encounters that happen in Scripture when people would encounter angels or Jesus himself, they would be greeted with the charge to fear not or do not be afraid, right? They don't want you to live in that relation to them. Um... So God doesn't want our experience with Him to be driven by fear, but by true love, and He wants our perspective to shift. We see this in Hosea chapter 2. Whenever God's speaking to His unfaithful bride who had, you know, run after other lovers, He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. God wants us to have this paradigm shift. No longer looking at God as these like groveling slaves who hope they'll be good enough at the end of the day, but to view Him as the love of our lives. 
He needs that perspective change to happen in our experience, and that happens by us encountering His love when we deserve it the least. Right? That's what leads to that perspective change. That's what happened to Hosea 2. Encountering this amazing love of God leads us to have a shift in how we view Him and our standing with Him. And when he sees that we're ready to fall in love, then he drops down on one knee in verse 19 of of Hosea 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people and they shall say, you are my God. And what takes place to make this a reality is in the next chapter, there's a price being paid to buy back an unfaithful bride. This is the gospel, a price that's paid to buy back the unfaithful bride. So again, no longer are we these groveling slaves who fear they'll never be good enough, but instead we view ourselves as loving spouses who have come to know that Christ is enough and that He's standing in our stead. This is what God needs for us. Again, we're dealing with this idea of fear God. And so it kind of leads to a question though, but doesn't the Bible say to fear God and give glory to Him? So what do we do with the tension here? We're explaining the downsides and the negative aspects of fear, but then the Bible says that we're to fear God and give glory to Him. So it kind of leads to a logical question for me. Well, how can I give glory to God when fear robs us of power, love, and the ability to think with a sound mind? There must be something else at play here. First of all, that's not where the sermon begins, okay? The sermon does not begin with fear God and give glory to Him. The sermon begins with the everlasting gospel that we just covered, right? And the appeal to that sermon, the logical response to that sermon is to fear God and give glory to Him. But Ellen White makes a statement that was so helpful for me to work through this tension. She says this, The love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend Him. This is what's being discussed here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, which has been so helpful for me. So it's the love of God that ever tends to the fear of God, and that's even the chronological order of the first angel's message. We encounter the love of God in the everlasting gospel, which leads to our response of godly fear, not abject fear. Those are two different types which is a fear to offend Him, right? That's what leads you to live a life that would honor Him in the midst of the judgment. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. What would lead you to want to give glory to Him and live a life that would honor Him in the judgment is first encountering God's love. The love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend Him. She says, those who are truly converted will not venture heedlessly upon the borders of any evil, lest they grieve the Spirit of God and are left to their own way to be filled with their own doings. So when we encounter the love of God, that's not a ticket to do what I want, right? doesn't really matter. God loves me anyway. It leads you to realize I don't want to do anything that would distance me from Him, right? To cut ties, to burn down every bridge to the things that would separate us from Him. The Word of God is the guidebook. Turn not from its pages to depend upon the human agent. Again, that was the, uh, the upward look. And she continues. This is page 371.7 still. That book contains the warnings, the admonitions from God, the rebuke of every evil, the clear definition of sin as a transgression of the law, which is God's great standard of virtue and holiness, and not one who will study the Word of God and apply its teachings will miss the way. Not one. Okay? So abject fear robs us of a clear picture of the love of God, and the absence of godly fear can rob us of a true perspective of our relation to God and how to follow Him. 
Do you see that? So do you see the balance here? Okay, abject fear robs us of a clear picture of the love of God, but an absence of godly fear robs us of a true perspective of our relation to him and how to follow him. He's not your fishing buddy, right? This is almighty God who is holy, righteous, just, and good, but he's also head over heels in love with you. You can have both. There's this idea that's alluded to in the Old Testament where love and righteousness or love and justice, or righteousness and peace have kissed each other, I think is what it says. But this, this idea that God... God in his justice and God in his love can both harmonize. It's not one or the other of like, he's super filled with wrath, but he also sometimes has love. The two can go together. It's not contradictory. In fact, we're going to have a class on that this spring. Uh, Elise Harbolt has this powerful class on, uh, on the justice of God. Because when we've been hurt or violated, one of our, the cries of our heart is for justice, right? She's got a great class on that, so you'll love it. All right, from eternity to past, this is basically a modern day rendition of Patriarchs and Prophets. She says, by Joshua's direction, the ark had been brought from Shiloh. This symbol of God's presence would deepen the impression he wished to make upon the people. Then listen to this. After presenting the goodness of God toward Israel, he then called upon them to choose whom they would serve. So Joshua doesn't say, who are you going to choose? Figure it out. He first presents the goodness of God before the people. Then he calls upon them to choose whom they will serve. The worship of idols was still to some extent secretly practiced. And Joshua endeavored now to bring them to a decision that should banish this sin from Israel. If it seems evil unto you to serve Jehovah, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua desired to lead them to serve God, listen, not by compulsion, but willingly. To engage in his service merely from hope of reward or fear of punishment would avail how much? Nothing. Open apostasy would not be more offensive to God than hypocrisy and mere formal worship. Yo. It would not be more offensive to God for you to be in open apostasy than to just serve him for selfish reasons and go through the formalities, is what she says. Okay? So there's a better motivator for us, and that motivator should be love. So what does fear do to us? Well, if we use a fear-based approach in the beautiful message that God has given us, or in the way that we raise and counsel our children, it causes harm and paralysis. And I've seen a lot of this. I've been at 31 of our academies. And I hang out largely more amongst conservative groups, but I've been to self-supporting and conference schools alike. <clears throat> but when you mix biblically conservative principles with a fear-based approach, even if it's done in a loving fashion, it still leads to analysis, paralysis, and misery in the religious experience. I've met people who came from godly, loving homes who still wrestle with fear because the theological lens through which they received the Adventist message was a fear-based lens. Even though they felt safe in their attachments in the home with their family, this still happens. And so it's super important that the way in which we communicate the Advent message is not a fear-based approach. Do you see that? Because people are so, like, they're so afraid of making the wrong decision, they can't make any decision. That's what analysis paralysis is. And I've seen so many undecisive people, indecisive people, people who are godly, who have spiritual gifts, and they're so radically indecisive. And it's because of this, right? And which is dangerous. So you may be able to scare somebody into a pew, but it's not going to keep them there. It doesn't last. Right? And anytime some fire-breathing dragon comes into your church and stirs the saints and everyone cleans out their fridge and their closet, time goes by and they go back to where they were because they never had a true motivator of love. Fear doesn't last in reform. It doesn't. You burn out. You flame out. 
So this is one of the reasons why we as Seventh-day Adventists fully reject the teaching of eternal torment, a teaching that's been brought, that has brought abject fear into the hearts of many, along with a hatred of God and rejection of Him. Ellen White is super clear on this. Many are made infidels today through this teaching of eternal torment. There are many people who are atheists because of this horrific teaching. And I want you to listen to this gangster quote from Ella White's mom. You ever heard somebody quote from Ella White's mom in a sermon? Listen to what she says. So they were, they were, te- they were telling, so they were Methodists, right? And they're leaving the Methodist church, but they're telling their pastor, like, hey, we can't believe this eternal torment stuff anymore. Like, it's not biblical. It's a bad picture of God. And the response of their pastor was, if you take away this teaching of eternal torment, what's going to make people follow God? Why would people follow God if he took that teaching away? And so she goes beast mode on this quote. Listen to this. Regarding the topic of eternal torment, she says, If this is sound Bible truth, instead of preventing the salvation of sinners, it will be the means of winning them to Christ. If the love of God will not induce the rebel to yield, the terrors of an eternal hell will not drive him to repentance. Amen? Besides, it does not seem a proper way to win souls to Jesus by appealing to one of the lowest attributes of the mind, abject fear. The love of Jesus attracts and it will subdue the hardest heart. If you remember, Ella White said something very similar to that a few quotes ago. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, it seems. Anyway, I think it's amazing. All right. Do I I shake this cage? Do I not shake this cage? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Do anyone know who this is? Looks like Dean. <laughs> it's Joshua Harris, yeah. The guy who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. So I'm not here to bag on that book, um, though he would if he was in this room, though he also isn't even a Christian anymore, so it's a long story. But um, here's the basic issue. Joshua Harris wrote this book back in the early 2000s, I think. He was about 19 to 20 years of age and had been in one relationship. And he wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He had a dream uh, and a a burden. He wanted to write a book that would change the world. And he did. Um, And his parents were publishers. He wrote this book, was super sincere. He didn't want people to get hurt in relationships. And so he wrote this book with this principle. This is not a relationships class. This is not a critique on it. That's not really my intention. But I watched a TED Talk a few years ago of Joshua Harris. It was called Brave Enough to be Wrong or Strong Enough to be Wrong. I forget the name of it. It was very good. And in short, Joshua Harris, over the years, would get a lot of flack from people because they felt like the book was damaging or harmful. Uh, It basically became the Bible on relationships for many conservative, especially homeschool families and groups, evangelicals, even Adventists were using it. And he was kind of talking about the, the harm and the damage of recreational dating, which can be harmful, damaging if you're just in it for sports sake, right? And not looking to see if this is going to work or not. If it doesn't work, you figured it out, you move on to somebody else, right? There, there can be benefits to that. Um, the chances of you dating the first person you marry is very unlikely. Uh, but there are some people who are living in that idealistic worldview and are devastated and destroyed when it doesn't work. Because they think, like, I thought God was leading. And what if God was leading and this wasn't the last destination? Is God bigger than our boxes? Like, that's a question that needs to come through this discussion. So anyway, in this situation, um, he makes some statements uh, about what he learned on the back end, because people were kind of giving him a hard time, um, and he would just say, oh, they're just haters, and they're just haters, and just kind of cast them off. But 
one day he was, uh, this lady posted on Twitter, your book was used against me like a weapon. And instead of loading up, right, cocking the Glock and going in, he made a decision to just say, I'm so sorry. And what began from that conversation were some personal messages back, from, back and forth, some direct messages back and forth, and he gave her a space to be heard. He wanted to hear her story. And at the end of that conversation, she said, I have never had a religious leader ever apologize to me for doing something that hurt me. And no one has ever taken the time as a religious leader to listen to my story with compassion. And this really spoke to him, and he realized something's not right here. Then he leaves pastoral ministry. He was pastoring in Maryland or Virginia, I think, one of the two. And he leaves pastoral ministry to go to college to pursue advanced studies. And I think it's Eugene Peterson's college up in Canada, uh, the guy that wrote the Message Bible. I think he was going up there. And he's at this college, and he's getting the same kind of comments he got from avatars on social media. But Because, you know, it's, it's hard to remember the fact that avatars are actually real human beings with feelings and stuff when all you see is a picture and a title and some pithy handle, you know. And so these people would tell him the same thing, and he's like, he couldn't get away from it. And so he realized, what if there's something here? What if there's something in my book that isn't okay? And so he decided to embark on a journey, a very difficult journey of self-discovery, and he made a documentary um, as part of his work for his schooling at college where he made a documentary that was entitled, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And he went through the painful and painstaking effort to interview people and hear their stories about what they went through because of his book, positive and negative. And it was excruciating for him for obvious reasons. He poured his life into this book. This was what he felt his mission and calling was, and he's seeing damaging fruit come from it in certain instances. And it's causing a real existential crisis for him. And so in this TED Talk, he talks about what his experience was. It's a thought-provoking documentary. Do I agree with all of his conclusions? No, but there's some very interesting stuff he brings to the table that I've not heard people talk about that I think they probably should. Um, so it's called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, if you want to find it. It was free online, but that was like three years ago. I didn't even know where to find it. Um, anyway, this is what he says in the TED Talk. He says, my biggest regret is that there was a lot of fear in me that I transferred into my writing. And fear is never a good motive. Fear of messing up, fear of getting your heart broken, fear of hurting somebody else, fear of sex. Why did it take me so long to see these problems? I think it's because I was so afraid of being wrong. So he didn't want to see it. Um, and it reminds me of, it doesn't remind me, I was having a conversation with John Dysinger about this and I was taking him to the airport the other day. Uh, just talking about issues we see amongst the movement and concerns we have and constructive conversations, not just ranting, but like, I see that this is an issue. Do you see this? What do we do about it type thing? And I've come to recognize that, especially in conservative circles, we have so identified ourselves in standing for what's right that our identity is interwoven with being right because we're standing for the right, Right? So we stand for the Sabbath, we stand for the investigative judgment, we stand for lifestyle issues, we stand for you know, purity, we stand for whatever. And when we do this, subconsciously, we don't recognize, we don't recognize that this happens, but it happens in sub conservative subcultures, that we think it's so hard for us to admit that we're wrong because we're so enmeshed with being right and standing for the right 
that if I admit that I'm wrong, part of me is afraid subconsciously that truth is no longer right either. Because I'm so identified with standing for the right that I think I'm right all the time. This is why when you get around really strong conservative people and you try to show them where they're wrong in something, they won't listen to you. They'll attack your character. They'll say, you're not spiritual. You drink coffee for goodness sakes. Why would I listen to you? Whatever it may be, right? The reason why people lash out and don't listen and don't take responsibility in some of these stronger conservative circles is for this reason, I believe, that subconsciously their identity is tied to being right because their lifestyle and their whole view is standing for the right. And so when someone shows you that part of what you believe is wrong, your identity is now threatened. You understand that? This is exactly what happened to Joshua Harris. As he began to recognize that some of the things that he had believed and stood for for so long were not actually biblical or reasonable, he now didn't know what to do. And he eventually threw the baby out with the bathwater. So he started to backpedal from where he was and trying to make sense of what to keep to eventually get to a point where he separated from his wife and now no longer identifies as a Christian. It's tragic that this is the case. But this can happen to us when our identity is tied to what we believe instead of God and His love for us. Because if someone challenges what we believe, we lose everything. Right? My, my identity isn't based upon what I believe, it's based upon who I know. Right? Because it could be that there were nuances, that I had a more legalistic view of, of, of Christianity, and whenever someone's trying to bring me to a more balanced view, I'm so threatened by the fact that I could be wrong about something, and what I've told people for so long that I can't face myself. I couldn't face that if I was wrong. And so we just leave all together, or we harden ourselves and won't budge. Do you see the danger of this? So this is why he has this TED Talk, this idea of strong enough or brave enough to be wrong. And this is what he says, that book had given me an identity. It was so hard for me to face up to being wrong because I felt like I was saying a big part of my life was wrong and I didn't have the courage to do that. He's saying the very thing that we're talking about. Now, something that can't be overlooked here is that for most fear, most of the time, right, is a battle of the subconscious mind that we aren't even aware of. You need to give people the benefit of the doubt in this and give yourselves the benefit of the doubt in this. It's not like we're proactively thinking, I'm totally scared to death and making ridiculous decisions right now. We, we don't think like that, right? So Josh didn't realize what effect fear was having on him and what decisions it was leading him to make or how it would play into his readers' own battles with fear and make it worse. So the fears and apprehensions that he had about relationships were transferred into his writing and then it triggered the fear in the people who were reading it which led them to make fear-based decisions, which are not sound decisions, right? This is what happens. And it led them to not be willing to love and be loved ever again because they thought they'd, date, they'd marry the first person they dated. That didn't happen, and now they're destroyed. They don't know how to make sense of any of life anymore. Could I ever trust God or people ever again because my love pursuit didn't work out, even though God was leading? Do you see this? And so this is where the difficulty can be. We can even teach and preach about fear without realizing how we ourselves are wrestling. Just because somebody's a preacher or a therapist or someone talks about mental health doesn't mean that they're an expert in these areas and don't struggle in these areas, right? We can have our own blind spots. There's someone I know who works in um, one of the mental health fields and, you know, they talk about relationships and stuff too, and their marriage is interesting, um, you know, like... Stuff like this happens. So just because someone speaks on a certain topic, let's not assume that they have everything figured out, right? And give them that latitude. Sometimes we can shame people. I thought you're a therapist. Shouldn't you know better than that? Like, 
come on now. Like, we're all human. We all got our stuff. So just because I'm telling you something about fear doesn't mean that I don't struggle with fear. One of the reasons why I'm talking about it is because I am processing through it, right? So anyway, just for what it's worth. So we need to ask God how fear is ruling us and shaping our lives. One of our responses to the first angel's message is a response of introspection. How is fear darkening my view of you and how is it hindering my life and my attempts to follow you? That's one of the ways in which we need to respond to the first angel's message. Yeah? All right, we're told this in Ecclesiastes 7, 7. It's a very interesting verse. It says, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. Is that true? That even people who have wisdom, godly people, can struggle and make bad decisions because of what they've gone through in life. And usually it's the most, you know, pertinent in areas where they've been hurt, Right? And so we may wrestle with decisions in relationships because we've been hurt in relationships. We may wrestle with decisions in a career because we got, you know, mowed down in a career and something bad happened, whatever it may be, okay? So even people with wisdom can be beat up by fear and in turn make decisions and develop ideas that aren't reasonable. And this is why we need God to open our eyes and to allow His love to set us free from fear. So what Joshua came to realize was that idealism was being pushed through his worldview. And he's not the only one, by the way. Just follow these steps and everything will be fine. You'll marry the first person you date. Your marriage will be perfect. Your sex life's going to be amazing, etc. It was kind of this money-back guarantee and that was really unrealistic, right? And so when people's hearts got broken, right? You assume I did it the right way. We didn't have sex before marriage and, you know, it's the first person I dated. And then you get married and you find out that people have problems. They've got emotional wounds. Intimacy may be difficult for them and that's something you need to go through therapy and work through. And so those expectations and ideals that they had in their own mind get obliterated and they don't know what to do. They fall apart. Is everything wrong? No, this is just part of life, right? Part of life involves difficulties, challenges, and trials. God never promised you freedom from that. God is not an idealist. He didn't say, hey, just do this and everything's going to be great. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you are going to have tribulation, period. In John chapter 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He did not promise us freedom from hardship. And so to assume that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to be gravy is a false assumption that Jesus never made. And then we have the audacity to get mad at Jesus for not protecting us whenever he never said that he would protect us from all hardship and difficulty. So now we're mad at somebody for not making, not keeping a promise that they never made. We get bitter at God because difficulties happen in this life. Jesus never said, if I'm here, bad things won't happen. His promise was when bad things happen, because they will, I'm here. Are you understanding? He doesn't choose bad things, but we live in a world where bad things exist. And even bad things can happen in pursuing godly relationships. There can be misunderstandings. How you were raised and how your spouse were raised could be totally different directions. You think differently. You process differently. You, you deal with conflict differently, right? You're going to have to work through those things. That's how it works. So um, we live in a world of sin. There's lessons that God teaches us through difficulty, and He never promises freedom from that. And so even in following His will, that can happen. So this kind of relational prosperity gospel ended up causing difficulties, and He saw that. So idealism is like the unbiblical, the laws of the unbiblical, it's like the unbiblical laws that the Jews made, right? They had this situation. They realized every time that we break the law of God, we get a whooping, right? Every time the Ten Commandments, every time we break the law, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, I know, it's fine. So every time, you know, we break these laws, we get a whooping, we go into exile, 
How many people in this room want to whoop and want to go into exile? Anybody? No. So they realized we keep blowing it. So once you get to Ezra and Nehemiah's day and onward, they basically made a decision. We're going to build a fence of man-made laws around the law so that no one can get anywhere close to touching it. So they had 39 Sabbath laws. If you spit on the ground, you're plowing the soil. You can't do that. You can't do the finishing stroke of anything. Um, A bunch of ridiculous laws, right? And so this is what they did. This is what idealism is. Idealism is us taking human constructs, trying to do the right thing. We have good intentions in doing it, but it's really just an act of self-protection. It's an act of distrust towards God, and it's an act of self-protection, right? This is largely where this comes from. So it doesn't point to Jesus. It points to man and his efforts instead of Christ and his efficiency, and it's largely rooted in fear, right? These principles we come up with out of our fear, we don't want to get hurt anymore. So we'll make laws and rules and so forth and control everybody else so I don't get hurt and everything else. So fear can make us create standards and rules that aren't biblical to try to save ourselves and protect ourselves. And it also leads to additional shame because now there's another set of standards that I'm not, I'm not meeting. Do you see that? When we make these man-made standards, now all of a sudden I'm not meeting this standard, let alone the law of God, right? And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an uphill battle. Like it's, it's gnarly, guys. And so this is where we have to kind of be willing to have these conversations. So if someone challenges, it's not that someone's looking to be like a cold-blooded rebel, because that's what we do. We lash out at them when they challenge these things. What if they aren't logical? What if we've created something that God never intended to exist, right? Like, what if someone's touching our sacred cow that God never made sacred? You know, like, maybe we need to work through some of that. And it's not a threat against you, right? God's trying to bring you freedom and healing, not bondage. And so that's something we need to kind of talk through and work through, okay? So God's solution is it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Um, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're made for good works. Absolutely. But God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has a way to enable us to succeed, right? So we can't build these structures and think that we're saved by these. So that's a process that he had to work through. And it's so unfortunate and sad that he went from one extreme to the other. But this can happen if your identity is tied to belief systems, right? Or being right in conservatism. And I'm a man with conservative principles. People would view me as a conservative. I don't like labels. I don't like boxes. I don't really fit in any camp. But the point is, my views would fall on that side of things. But I need to be open-minded enough to look at something and say, is this biblical or is it... Because again, these, these things sound moral, don't they? It's not like we're saying like, oh yeah, you have to like have a zebra in your house or God is displeased. Like it's not, it doesn't sound that crazy. But the point is like there are principles and things that we can have that we need to be willing to be pragmatists and say, is this something that, that aligns with the Word of God, or is this someone's attempt to save themselves and protect themselves? Right? To kind of process and work through that. So God wants us to experience a faith that works by love, as it says in Galatians 5, 6, and not a faith that works by fear. It doesn't work at all, actually. Okay? And so that's, that's the point. We're told this in Christ's Object Lessons, and we'll read this again later. In every command and in every promise of the Word of God is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. And that he who by faith receives the Word is receiving the very life and character of God. In every requirement of God is the power to succeed in walking in the requirement of God. That's the promise we're given. 
in every command and in every promise of the Word of God is the power to walk in obedience to it or to receive the promise, which is amazing because now I don't have to be threatened by what God asks or expects of me anymore because it's a promise of who He believes I can be and through His strength I will be. Do you see that? And it's a beautiful, beautiful premise. So one of the reasons we deal with fear is because we're insecure in our connection and dependence upon God. We've gotten behind the wheel and feel like we may run off the road. And we will run off the road, right? If we're not letting Him drive and if He's not the one sitting first place in our lives. So for some of us, we're asking God to protect us while being our primary means of our own protection. There are hardened, self-protective tendencies, right? So we're asking God to protect us but we're not really asking God to heal us from what hardened us in the first place, to heal us from the violation and the wounds of the past, to then be able to be in a healthy space where God could use the people around us to love and heal us and grow us and draw us back to himself. We're cutting ourselves off from the very healing community that God longs to give us because of what happened in the past. Again, you can have boundaries. You can forgive someone and not trust them because they have not proven themselves to be trustworthy. I'm not saying to go back to that. But what I am saying is to project the previous person's failure upon everybody else is not fair to everybody else. My mom wrestled with this, right? The last guy beats her up. So now she assumes the next guy is going to treat her like the last guy did. But the problem is he's not the last guy. Now, she may have a tendency towards people who would treat her in the way that she feels that she deserves. And that needs to be dealt with. And that can happen, can't it? Or we can go to relationships that will treat us in the way that we feel that we deserve, which is unhealthy. I'm not saying that we need to be in those types of situations, but we can project the previous violations upon everyone else going forward, which is not fair to them because they're not that person. Now, if we see similar threads, we can keep boundaries and barriers, but the point is God wants healing, communion, and community for all of us, and it's going to take the willingness to let down our guard, to lay down our arms, and to let ourselves be known and loved. Yeah? And the only way we can really receive the love from other people is by first allowing ourselves to be fully known and fully loved by God Himself. Because it's hard for some of us, isn't it? Because we don't feel that we deserve to be treated that goodly, that well. And so we say, no, you can't do that. So we will disqualify ourselves from receiving what God longs to give us because of our own perspective, not because of God's goodness. He doesn't want that for us. Yeah? So fear makes a fool of us, guys. So whatever you're afraid of losing can't bring you any more security in your identity or freedom or happiness than he can. Some of us, we need to let go of control. Control is our agent to protect ourselves. And God's saying, you're not to be in the business of protecting you. That's my job. Get off the throne and let me do what I do best. Okay? And God can give you wisdom in having boundaries with people. It's totally reasonable. But that's not what most of us are doing, right? We hate not being in control because we're afraid of what may happen. Because the last time we got hurt, it hurt. I get that. But that means we're in bondage. Our longing to control implies that we're in bondage. Only God can give us our identity, acceptance, and purpose. Told in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise His word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Someone grab Psalm 34 and verse 4 real quick. Bible drills. Go. Psalm 34 and verse 4. Go for it, Adriana. 
I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. We need that today, don't we? So in that Psalm 56, that implies that fear affects our ability to trust God. And I believe this is why many of us have those self-protective tendencies. It's another story I usually tell, but I'm not going to for time's sake. Um, Has this made sense? Okay, this idea of fear God and give glory to Him and have a better, healthier context of how to navigate this. Any thoughts or questions quickly before we take our next break? Because I'm going to try to squeeze out one more presentation after, after this break. Again, that statement from Ellen White, it's the love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend Him. Finding that difference between abject fear right, and a godly fear. That's kind of the point. Okay, there is a place for fear in the Bible that we saw that's a fear to offend him, to live a life that would honor him and not hurt him, right? As it was mentioned, you know, that kind of tender regard for him. Um, but that's different than being horrified of him. God is someone to be a friend of, not someone to be afraid of, right? Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And so his disposition towards you is not one as a master lording things over you. He wants to be the love of your life. And if you're scared of your spouse, something's wrong. I think, I think, like, I think like the biggest issue is like trying to, trying to compare a relationship with God to relations with people. You know, and so it's like we, I mean, literally, has anyone experienced a relationship with a person where there wasn't some kind of like issue, you know? And so it's like, I think it's a perspective change that needs to happen where we got to learn how God loves us and then use that to inform human relationships, not by... Absolutely right. Yeah, our, our view of our fellow man will be defined by our view of God's view of us. And we'll talk about that in the faith of Jesus because um, it says that here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So they are maintaining something that isn't theirs. The faith of Jesus is no more theirs than the commandments of God are theirs. They're receiving something from God, right? And that's, that, that perspective happens. And it should happen through encountering the three angels' messages. And we're starting to see that, aren't we? Because when you see somebody who's broken and is acting out and lashing out, you come to realize, I know why. Someone has violated them. Someone has hurt them. And I have a Savior who understands what it's like to be in that situation. And if He can heal me of my brokenness, He can heal them of their brokenness. And it changes our horizontal views. Right? When we see somebody who's absolutely broken and scared all the time and super self-protective, we can understand why. Previous violations in life. But we also know that God has freedom to give them. Freedom with protective boundaries, right? It's reasonable to have those. But many times we err on the side of giving nobody, you know, an opportunity to be trusted or loved as opposed to having proper boundaries and living a life of freedom and healing community. Yeah, we should have a balanced, nuanced approach to that. So this isn't either or. It's kind of communicating what, how that works. Okay? All right. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us, for giving us a chance to parcel through what's going on in the first message, first angel's message, and specifically the topic of fear. Help us to have a balanced, reasonable, biblical view. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.